Psalm 123, a song of ascents. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. Okay, our sermon uh, verses today are uh, Exodus 24, 9 through 18, and this is entitled, Come Up to Me on the Mountain. Verse 9, Then Moses went up also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand, so they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. Then he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Now, I expected, because the last two uh, passages that we looked at have had chiasms in them, I expected that there would probably be one there uh, in this passage. And so I went looking this week because I thought, you know, I know how the Lord works in these type of things. He's done it consistently through the two previous passages which, which fit into this section. And so, sure enough, uh, I had a couple hours uh, of free time this week, and I looked, and uh, uh, what is it, three, two, so that would have been Tuesday or Wednesday. Anyway, um, dug this up. Uh, uh, the first is from uh, verse 9, then Moses went up, and if you go down to the bottom, verse 18, so Moses went into the midst of the cloud. Got the same thought. Um, B, which would be verse 10, it's a description of the Lord's glory, and B, verse 17, it's a description of the Lord's glory. Uh, in C, uh, and I know I left off the word, but I corrected it for the uh, website. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. And C, and the, on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. D, Moses went up to the mountain of God. D, then Moses went up into the mountain. You see the perfect patterns there. And then finally, the anchor is the instruction to the elders, the designation of Aaron and Hur as leaders. So once again, we have a chiasm right there in the Bible in these passages. It's God showing us what is going on? These are very complicated verses unless you see the chiasm. And then it all comes into play. So as we're going through them, refer back to it, and you'll see the, the logical order of what's happening. Because I'm going to disagree with scholars of the past on the actual sequence of events because this chiasm shows us this. There's something pretty special, though, about climbing a mountain. Anybody here ever climbed one? There definitely is. There's working involved in it, of course, and it's like a test of endurance but when you get up to the top, it can be a most rewarding thing. This is why Christians often use the term a mountaintop experience. When you're up there, you can raise your arms and you can feel the victory of having defeated the granite foe which tired your legs and which exhausted your lungs. 
from the mountaintop, you can look back down on the mountain in derision. You can say, you couldn't beat me. Instead, I overcame. And you can look at the world around you and you can feel victorious over all of it. You have ascended to a point where everything else looks so small and insignificant. For the Christian, a mountaintop experience is one which says, I am alive. I have come to the place of God and to the throne of his grace. Nothing can defeat me because I am up here with him. Everything else is overcome. In today's verses, there will be a mountaintop experience for the nobles of Israel. They will rejoice and feast in the presence of the Lord. And yet, they hadn't really overcome anything. They simply agreed to the covenant. And so the covenant was cut between the Lord and them. If they saw God feasted in his presence and rejoiced at the marvel that they beheld while still bound under the law, which was set against them, then how much more should we rejoice at being in the presence of God while having the law fulfilled in our place? I mean, Christ is the one who did the work. Christ is the one who overcame. And by calling on Christ, we too are seated with him in the heavenly places, not below him looking up. Our text verse today comes from Isaiah chapter 40. It's the ninth verse. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Today is a great passage because it shows us that we can, in fact, draw near to God. Not too long after this account, Israel will really mess up and they will violate the very law that they go up to the mountain to celebrate in its establishment. Their mountaintop experience will end. But for those who are in Christ, the law is fulfilled. And so our mountaintop experience is really just getting started. And it is one which will last for all eternity. It's great stuff from our glorious Lord. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is, they saw the God of Israel. It's verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders. This must be a second ascension by these men after the ratification of the covenant. Some scholars see it as the same ascension mentioned in verse 1, and then verses 2 through 8 would be parenthetical, but as we saw last week, this is not correct. The first ascension was for the receiving of the Book of the Covenant. After that, it was brought to the people where agreement of it was made. After that, it was ratified in blood through sacrifice. Now, a second ascension is made. This is for a different purpose which logically follows such a sacrifice. The question of why each of these named people is ascended needs to be answered. Why are Aaron and his two eldest sons mentioned? Why didn't one of the sons of Moses come? And why 70 elders? Well, Moses is selected because he's God's chosen prophet. There is no family line of succession in the Bible for a prophet. Thus, his sons are not included. Aaron is to be the high priest. This line will include genealogical succession all the way until the time of the coming of Jesus Christ. Thus, his two eldest sons are recorded in anticipation of this. And the 70 elders are representative of their respective tribes. The number 70 has already been seen numerous times as reflective of divine perfection. Thus, these 70 leaders divinely represent all of Israel. 
of this ascension, Kyle notes this. He says, through their consecration with the blood of the covenant, the Israelites were qualified to ascend the mountain. In other words, Kyle is saying that it is because of the sacrifice and the sprinkling of the blood that they may now ascend the mountain. This is not entirely correct as they've already ascended once. Rather, the consecration with the blood allows for what follows during this ascension, something marvelous for them to behold. Verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. This verse is one which deniers of the Bible will use to challenge the inerrancy of it. And so it's a good verse to take and stop and to evaluate very carefully. First, the words are clear. et Yisrael, And they saw the God of Israel. The first seeming contradiction arises from the words of Deuteronomy 4, verse 12, where we read this. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You heard only a voice. A moment later, the explanation for having seen no form is given. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. This is easily explained in that Moses was speaking to the entire congregation of the people in Deuteronomy. The people as a whole were denied this privilege that the elders have been granted. Secondly, in Exodus 33, Moses asked to see the Lord's glory. In response, the Lord said this, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. People say, see, there's a contradiction. Again, there is no contradiction here. Nothing is said of seeing the Lord's face at this time with the elders on Sinai. It simply says they saw the God of Israel. After Moses was told that he couldn't see the face of Jehovah, he was still allowed to see his back. If he has a back, then he has a front. We cannot see the future, but we can see the present. And in our mind, we can still see what is past. Again, there is no contradiction. Third, twice in the New Testament, we are told that seeing God is not possible. Here are those verses. 1 John 4:12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. And the second one is from 1 Timothy 6, it's verses 13 through 16. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. These verses are speaking of God the Father and the divine essence within the Godhead. No man can see Jesus' deity, and yet we see his humanity. Someday we will see his glorified humanity in a splendor that we cannot even imagine. But it will still be the part of God that is revealed in the present. The vastness of God will never be fully seen by us, even to all of eternity. Think of it. If God is infinite, if he is eternal, and we were to see all of God at once, then we would be seeing everything that will ever exist in all of eternity. It's impossible. 
Jesus Christ is the one that ceaselessly and continuously reveals God's glory to us. So when we see Jesus, we are seeing God the Father being explained through Jesus Christ. That's why in his glorified state, we'll see him differently than in his human state. But we still will not see his deity in its fullness. We'll simply see it being revealed through him. It is Jesus who reveals God to us. And then this explains what the people on the mountain there saw. The God of Israel is Jehovah the Lord. This is stated explicitly in Exodus 5, verse 1. He is called the God of Israel. Because he is the God of the fathers, he had become, in truth, the God of Israel through the covenant which was just made. It all fits if you keep it in context. If not, then you see a bunch of contradictions in the Bible. And as the Bible will continue to reveal as we progress, Jehovah the Lord is Jesus our Lord. Therefore, the vision that they see in no way contradicts another portion of Scripture. Jesus revealed himself to the people as Jehovah, the God of Israel. This same God of Israel, Jehovah, will continue to manifest himself to select people in various ways. Among others, he will appear in bodily form to Joshua, to Gideon, and to the parents of Samson. He will appear in divine splendor to Isaiah and to Ezekiel. Each time that he reveals himself in scripture, we get a better understanding of his glorious nature, all of it which is revealed in Jesus. The author of Hebrews explains this to us. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Verse 10 continues. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. The fact that the feet of the Lord are mentioned shows that they beheld the Lord. It would make no sense, as so many scholars say, to note what is under his feet if they didn't see his feet. Instead, it would simply leave that out, but it doesn't. And if there are feet, then there is a body connected to the feet. The words here, kema'ase, livnat hasapir, a work of the clearness of sapphire. Two words are introduced into scripture here. The first is livna. This is its only use in the Bible. The word means brick and thus properly whiteness and then by implication, transparency. The second new word is sapir. This is the first of just 11 times and it will be used. Sapir comes from safar, which means to count. And thus it is a gem perhaps for scratching other substances. In other words, you're making a note, you're counting by scratching, okay? It is debated whether this is actually a sapphire, it sounds like sapphire, 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 or a lapis lazuli, but it's probably a sapphire. The reason why is because this same word is used again in Isaiah 54:11 to be one of the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. John mentions the same concerning the sapphire in Revelation 21, verse 9, which is in the Greek. Thus, this clear sapphire pavement, if you will, is a part of the vision of God which is beheld by the elders of Israel. Verse 10 continues, And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Uke etsem hashemayim lat tohar. And the bone of the heavens in clearness. The word essence is etsem. This word means bones. And thus it is a comparative word which stems back to the creation of Eve from Adam. In Genesis 2.23, Adam proclaimed this, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He was making a comparison based on the rib from which he was made. Thus, bone is a word of comparison. The etsem or bone of the heavens means like the heavens. And so this is not the sky that they saw, but something like the sky. The word for clarity here is tohar. This is the first of only two times it's going to be used in the Bible. Here and in Psalm 89, verse 44. In that psalm, it will be used in a negative way when the Lord is said to have caused the glory or the clarity of the throne of David to cease. Tohar comes from tahur, which means clean. Thus, it literally signifies brightness, ceremonial purification, and glory. Of this remarkable vision which these men beheld, Matthew Henry gives us the following advice. He says, the sapphires are the pavement under his feet. Let us put all the wealth of this world under our feet and not in our hearts. Thus the believer sees in the face of Jesus Christ far clearer discoveries of the glorious justice and holiness of God than ever he saw under terrifying convictions and through the Savior holds communion with a holy God. What Matthew Henry is saying is that this most precious of gems is used as a mere place for the feet of the Lord. And so let us not fix our eyes on something even so precious as this. Instead, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the source and creator of even such marvelous things. Verse 11, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. A curious word is introduced here, which is translated as nobles. It is atzil. It's found only twice in the Bible, here and in Isaiah 41, verse 9. Instead of elders, they are called atzil. The word gives the sense of separation. In other words, the verse explains the use of the word. If we paraphrased it to say, but on the separated of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand, then we can grasp why this word is used. These men were granted the right to have close proximity with the Lord because of their separated status. From this, the translators have designated them as nobles. And again, this verse shows us that these men actually saw the God of Israel. If they didn't, and if they only saw a glimpse of his glory in light or in fire, as so many scholars suggest, then they would have had no need to include the words that he did not lay his hand on them. The entire congregation has seen glimpses of his glory and light and smoke. Remember, they're down at the bottom of Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, and they saw that. They saw it in fire and in the pillar and in the manifestation, you know, going through the Red Sea and at the giving of the law and all these different times. Instead, these men are being given a view of far more. Verse 11 continues, so they saw God and they ate and drank. Some translations give the idea of two separate occurrences. First, they saw God and then they ate and drank. This is incorrect. The two are simultaneous. They saw God while they ate and drank. This was a meal in the presence of the Lord as they dined on the peace offerings of the sacrifice of verse 5. In this meal is a foreshadowing of the Lord's table, which we participate in each week. It is remembrance of the meal, which was shared by Christ and his apostles at the giving of the new covenant. We remember this by faith in the accuracy of the Bible. And so in Christ, as revealed in scripture, we see and fellowship with God. It needs to be noted that the word for God is used three times in our verses today. The first was calling him Elohe Yisrael, or God of Israel. The next two times it will say Ha Elohim, or the God. This is the first such time. Ve'yechezu et ha Elohim. And they beheld the God. 
The article is unfortunately left off once again by translators, but it is an important clue as to the nature of the Lord. This is evident because of the coming words of verse 12. But before we get there, we have a short poetic break. On the mountain of God, his people will meet. There in his presence, they will look upon his glory. The banquet will be delicious and the fellowship sweet. It will be the consummation of a marvelous story. There on the mountain of God, the people will rejoice. For eternal days, there will be gladness and delight. Never again will be heard the saddened voice. Never again will there be a dark, fearful night. On the mountain of God, where Christ will forever reign, the people will stream to him. His glory they shall see. Never will there be troubles or trials. Never again pain. Instead, there will be only blessing and joy for all eternity. Our second thought today is the mountain of the God. It's verses 12 through 15. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. What can be assumed is that when the meal ended, all of the people descended the mountain and went back to the camp once again. This is to be inferred based on the events of Exodus 32. At some point after that, it says that the Lord said to Moses, the God whom the elders saw is Jehovah. This name is mentioned 11 times in the chapter. Three times the word God is mentioned, and they're only in this last section of verses 9 through 13. They are given in relation to the Lord and who he is. He is the God of Israel. He is the God who can reveal himself to the nobles, and he is the God who displays his power on the mountain. It is the God, Jehovah, who now petitions Moses to come up once again. It is for a very specific purpose that he does so. Verse 12 continues, And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. The word tablets here is luach. This is the first of 43 times that it's going to be used. It comes from a root which means to glisten. Thus it is a tablet as polished, maybe of stone or of wood or metal. This is now the third time that writing has been mentioned in the Bible. But this is the first time that the words are said to have been written by the Lord himself. There's a great debate as to the meaning of the words that are found here. Is this speaking only of the Ten Commandments in a triple description? In other words, the tablets of stone are the law and the commandments. Or will the Lord give him tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments and also the laws and commandments which he has written? Deuteronomy 5 verse 22 says this, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, which with a loud voice, and he added no more. Then he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. This sounds like only the Ten Commandments were inscribed on the stone. However, it could mean that only the Ten Commandments were spoken to the people and nothing more. This doesn't preclude other words having been included on the tablets. In Exodus 31, after seven chapters of instruction to Moses, it's going to say this. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This seems to imply that all of what was said is included, even those seven chapters. All of it's recorded on the tablets. But it also doesn't preclude the assumption that the Lord simply wanted to give the tablets, which contained only the Ten Commandments, to Moses just before he went back down the mountain. The answer seems to come from Exodus 34, where it says this, So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. 
He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. In that chapter, Moses was told to write the words of the Lord, but the words of the Ten Commandments were written on the new set of tablets by the Lord. So what seems to be the case is that only the Ten Commandments were written by the Lord on these tablets. The rest of the instructions which follow in the next seven chapters will be recorded by Moses as the Lord instructs. And you wonder why I get all worried about these things and I analyze them and overanalyze them. There's a reason why. There's a reason why I just gave you all of that detailed information trying to discover, is it only the Ten Commandments or is it the Ten Commandments plus all the other words? Okay, I'm going to tell you why in a minute. The stone tablets are given as a picture of our spiritual state. They are durable, but capable of being broken. In this, God knew that man would break them. It was thus, therefore, a picture of the hardness of the human heart upon which no impression can be made except by God's finger. Paul explains this in the New Testament with the coming of the New Covenant. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he says this, Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, not written with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Thus, this entire giving of the law, with Moses breaking the first tablets, and then a second being made, is a picture of Christ. God made the first tablets, okay? It says that God made the tablets, and then after that, he recorded the law on them. But man was incapable of obeying them, pictured by Moses dashing them to pieces on the ground. The second set of tablets was made by Moses, and then the Lord wrote the commandments on them. This pictures Christ who came from man and yet who fulfilled God's word without breaking it. The human deity of Christ is the stone of the tablets, unbroken, and who is the word of God. Everything else that Moses will be told in the next seven chapters is also going to picture Christ. Everything. You're not going to believe it. We're going to be getting into the instruction for the tabernacle next week, and then after that we're going to get into the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and then into the table of showbread, and you're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe how many pictures of Christ there are in those things. It's just amazing. There will be instructions for religious life. There's going to be a form of worship given. There's going to be ceremonies, a tabernacle with associated furniture, garments, etc. All of these are given for the benefit of the people, but they all picture the work of Christ. These will be recorded by Moses at the Lord's instruction. Verse 13, so Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. As suddenly as he appeared in Exodus 17, Joshua now appears again. Together with Moses, they both ascend Har Ha Elohim, or Mountain of the God. As always is the case, when the mountain is referred to in connection with God, there is an article in front of God. The one true God, Jehovah, dwells there. Joshua is certainly being brought along because he is not only the general of the forces, as we saw in the battle with Amalek, but he was also his close and trusted personal assistant. He was shown to be accepted by Moses as his designated representative and successor. In every way so far, he forms a beautiful picture of Christ. What is just as remarkable here, as in the account of Exodus 17, is that the name Yehoshua, or Joshua, is used, but his name is originally Hosea. It won't be until Numbers chapter 13 that the change in his name is recorded. And yet Moses calls him Joshua now. Thus in this we are to see a further picture of Christ. 
The commentator Bishop Pearson explains this as, without Jesus, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, there is no looking into the secrets of heaven, nor approaching the presence of God. Verse 14, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. All that is said here is that they were to wait for the return of Moses and Joshua. No time frame is given for their return, but verse 12 says that he would remain there. The time was, however, unspecified. What is implied, though, is that no matter how long they were gone, they were to wait there and not ascend the mountain where the presence of God was. Verse 14 going on. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. As in the battle of Amalek, Aaron and Hur are given special attention. During this battle, which was led by Joshua, Aaron and Hur are the ones that held up Moses' hands to ensure the battle would end in Amalek's defeat. Josephus says that Hur is the husband of Miriam, and thus he would be the brother-in-law of Moses and Aaron. Verse 15, then Moses went up into the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. With his instructions for the affairs of the camp settled, it says that he went up into the mountain. The same words are used here as in verse 13, Ve'ya'al Moshe El, and went up Moses too. When we get to verse 18, it says that Moses will go up again using the same word Ve'ya'al, and went up. Because of this, scholars say that Moses went up the mountain with Joshua a part of the way, and then when he was called again, he will go up the rest of the way alone. But it doesn't say this. That is only speculation, and that is unfounded. What appears to be happening is that verses 13, 15, and 18 are all the same ascent. Let me read them to you without the intervening uh, verses. Verse 13, so Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. Verse 15, then Moses went up into the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. Verse 18, so Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. Between the first two notes of ascent are parenthetical thoughts. The first is verse 14. Between 13 and 15, it said, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. And then we have another parenthetical thought between 15 and 18, which says, now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. No scholars look at the first mention of him going up as actually going up until he first instructed the elders about Aaron and Hur. Wouldn't be possible because he's down there instructing them, right? So why should the second mention be any different? Rather, that thought is given while Moses is still with the people. He waited six days until he was called, and then he went up with Joshua into the cloud, which had descended on the mountain before they departed. And you're wondering why I'm giving you all this detail. Again, I'm going to give you a point in a couple of minutes, and you'll understand exactly why. It's important to note that in Hebrew, it does not say a cloud covered the mountain. It says the cloud covered it. Thus, it is the same cloud which guided the people through their wanderings, through the Red Sea, and which has brought them to where they are. It is the cloud which both conceals the glory of the Lord and in which the glory of the Lord is revealed. What makes this interesting is that only Moses is mentioned from now through verse 32:17, when Joshua will again be mentioned. Despite him being with Moses all of the time, he will not be mentioned again throughout the entire account. 
We have not been left alone in the wilderness. Though the Lord is not here, he has a helper given to us. And his word is written so that we don't have to guess which path to take to lead us straight to Jesus. And if it be the word of God, then let us daily attend to it, for in its pages are all that we need as our guide. With our feet shod to its words, let us submit and walk the path it reveals, never turning aside. And when we come to the end of our days, for our efforts upon the Lord, he will smile, because we have been obedient to all of his ways, applying his words to our lives all the while. Our third thought today is the glory of the Lord. It's verses 16 through 18. Verse 16, now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. Why is it important to determine if Moses went up part of the way and then waited six days to go up the rest of the way, or if he ascended the mountain on the sixth day in one ascent? The reason is that Matthew uses this same terminology for the account of the transfiguration that is used here in Exodus. Here's what Matthew wrote. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. The specificity given by Matthew is there for a reason. In the preceding verse, which is Matthew 16, 28, Jesus said this to his disciples. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It was on the seventh day that Jesus, Peter, John, and James, or James and John, ascended the mountain, and Jesus was transfigured, thus revealing the glory of the Lord. Matthew is tying the glory of the Lord seen at Sinai to the glory of Christ on the high mountain. All three of the Synoptic Gospels tie in this glory of the Lord on the mountain with the promised taste of the coming kingdom. For the people of Israel, the law had been received and the elders had seen the glory of God. Now a repeat of this is seen in Christ. In Matthew 16, Peter had made his proclamation that Jesus is the Christ. It was to be known and understood that he is the incarnate word, Jehovah, just as Jehovah is understood to be the God by the elders of Israel. Unfortunately, in both occasions, the people failed to stand on the evident truth. In Exodus, they'll fashion a false god, and in Matthew, they will crucify Christ. But there is also another picture in both accounts, which will be seen as we go on. Verse 16 continues, And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. It is certain to me that Moses and Joshua are still with the people in the camp. Six days had gone by since the cloud descended upon Sinai. Now on the seventh day, the call is made for Moses from the midst of the cloud. It is time for him to ascend the mountain. Many, even most scholars, see this as a Sabbath day. I don't see any reason at all to assume this. Rather, as Moses has to ascend the mountain, that would mean that he would have to work to go up the mountain. Thus, it would be certainly a violation of the very law that had been given and which will be engraved on stone. That makes no sense at all. What makes more sense, if we are to speculate, is that this is the first day of the week. The call would have been made after the Sabbath when Moses had rested, not on it. Further, it would then match the day which John received his vision of the future, which is recorded in Revelation 1, verse 10, which was on a Sunday, the Lord's Day. Verse 17, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. The six days equate to the first 6,000 years of man on earth. 
The seventh day equates to the millennium. This is the same picture that Christ was giving the disciples. He said that some standing with him wouldn't taste death until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The transfiguration anticipated the fulfillment of this. The glory of the Lord was seen to them on the mountain on the seventh day, just as the glory of the Lord will be seen in the coming millennium during the final thousand years of God's 7,000 year plan. The people of Israel had a taste of this truth 1,500 years earlier. To them, the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. The author of Hebrews uses the exact same terminology to speak of Christ our God. He is a consuming fire, according to Hebrews 12, verse 29. The outward appearance of God's glory on the mountain in this fiery display was given to demonstrate the unapproachable justice of God, just as it was when the cherubim stood at the east of Eden with their flaming swords and is seen throughout all of the rest of the Old Testament symbolism. Only in the death of Jesus Christ, where the veil of the temple was rent in two, could man once again find access to God. The law, which was received, and which Moses will now continue to receive, is only another barrier to true fellowship with God. Only in its fulfillment can that be realized, and only Christ has fulfilled it. The pulpit commentary notes concerning the six days of delay before Moses calling himself that God thus taught Moses and through him the world that near approach to him requires a long and careful preparation. That careful preparation of six days is directly equated to the 6,000 years of careful preparation that God has taught us through until the coming of Christ in his kingdom. It is true that we already have access to God through Christ, but this is not yet realized in its fullness. The account today shows us, though, that it's not going to be long before it is. We are at the cusp of a great day in redemptive history, if you believe in the dispensational model of history and that Christ is going to rule for a thousand years. It's coming soon to a theater near you, I assure you. Verse 18, so when Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain, Moses alone is recorded as going up, but we know that Joshua was with him. The picture we see in this is realized in the layout of the temple. The people remained outside while the high priest alone went behind the veil. Thus Sinai, or the bush of the thorn, is given as a picture of that which is unapproachable but to the high priest. The people of Israel waited while Moses and Joshua went up. Jesus is that high priest, pictured by Moses and the unnamed Joshua. He wore a crown of thorns, pictured by the naming of Sinai in verse 16. It is the only time that Sinai is mentioned in this chapter and the first time that it's been named since chapter 19, which was 13 sermons ago. It was he who bore the crown of thorns and who also went behind the veil. And like bookends, the names are calling out to us. Moses is the one to receive the law. Jesus is the one to fulfill it. Thus, even the names fit the picture. Moses, or he who draws out, is the one to draw out the law for his people. Joshua, or Yah is salvation, is there to picture Jesus, the Lord who saves and who filled the law, fulfilled the law for us. Verse 18 finishes with these words, And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The chapter ends with these surprising words. If you'd never read the account before, and if you had to stop here for a while, you would be left wondering about it. But as we know, Moses received an immense amount of information during those 40 days. They will comprise the next seven chapters of the book of Exodus. 
But the number 40 isn't just an arbitrary amount of time that Moses happened to take to receive the instructions. The time frame has been given for us to reflect on. Like all numbers in scripture, there is a purpose for each. E.W. Bollinger defines the significance of the number 40. Here's what he says. 40 has been universally recognized as an important number, both on account of the frequency of its occurrence and the uniformity of its association with a period of probation, trial, chastisement. Not judgment, like the number nine, which stands in connection with the punishment of enemies, but the chastisement of sons and of a covenant people. It is the product of five and eight and points to the action of grace, which is five, leading to and leading to and ending in revival and renewal, which is the number eight. This is certainly the case where 40 relates to a period of evident probation. The 40 days are rightly defined by Bollinger as a time of evident probation. The people had been given the law and now they were to be tested with that law without their leader there to supervise them. How would they fare during that period while he's gone? There are eight such great 40-day periods recorded in Scripture. One of them corresponds to this period in a marvelous way. Israel was given these 40 days of testing, and they will fail. Jesus was given 40 days of testing, and he prevailed. And his 40-day period also matches the other periods of 40s found throughout the Bible, both periods of 40 days and periods of 40 years. In all ways, he was shown to be superior to those who came before him. He never failed, and he consistently is shown as our greater than. In all ways, and in all types, and in all pictures, he is truly greater than. One thing is for sure about these many stories of the Old Testament. Time and time again, they are given to show us not just stories of things which really happened, but of something else, something that we cannot do without. Each story points to our failings, but they are intended to lead us to Jesus' victory. It may seem a curious way that God deals with us, but one thing is sure. Nothing can be more rewarding than finding Christ Jesus on every single page. The love of God is poured out in the ink which permeates the pages of the Bible. All of this effort is to show us that God really, really cares enough to take the time throughout all of the ages of human history to weave together a most marvelous picture of Jesus. If you're seeing this, but if you are still on the outside of his grace, why don't you settle that today? Call on Christ, receive his offer of grace, and be reconciled to God through that act. Let me tell you how you can do just that. The Bible does show, I say it week after week, that we are separate from God. We have been separated from him by sin. It started with Adam. Adam sinned. Adam fell. And since then, all people are born in sin. David confirms that in the 51st Psalm. You know, I was conceived in iniquity. From I was sinful from my mother's womb. It's something that infects us. Once in a while, I'll remind you that none of us had to teach our children to do wrong. Not one of us. They knew how to do wrong right from the beginning. We need to teach them to do right. And we all need to be taught to do right in the story of Jesus Christ as well. Is that... He died in our place. And sinful as we are, God sent him into the world to do just that, to fulfill this law that we're looking at and all of the things that are coming, all these pictures of him. And then the New Testament comes and it shows us the fulfillment of them. We saw at least two, maybe three of them today. Things that are pictured in the old, which are so obvious when you see the connection in the new. Why? Because God wants us to understand that there is one way and one way alone to be reconciled to him. He would not have gone through all of this 
time and effort writing the book and using a select group of people to show us this truth if it wasn't true. And if he lets one person in apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ died in vain. Think of that. One person is allowed into heaven without going through the blood of Christ, then it was a futile, futile death that he died. Because that means that somebody else could make it too, and it's not going to happen. God wants us to call on Jesus and to give our life to him. Please do it today if you never have. All right? And if you have and you haven't been living for him, then start living for him. Start honoring him with the life that you've been given. Our closing verse today is uh, from Hebrews. It's chapter 6. It's verses 19 and 20. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul. An anchor is intended to make something fixed. It's not something that gets pulled up and you say, oh gosh, I don't know if I'm saved or not, right? An anchor is there to fix you to something. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, just as Moses and Joshua picturing Christ went behind the veil, the people couldn't see, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He is our greater than. Everything that Moses did, everything that Joshua was going to do in his life, Jesus did greater than. He is the fulfillment of all of these types and all of these pictures that were being given. Little snippets of human history. Wonderful stuff. Next week is Exodus 25. It's verses 1 through 9. There's many details for Moses to tackle. It's entitled Preparations for the Tabernacle. That'll be our 67th Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him, and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Got a poem for you based on these nine verses today. It's entitled, Meeting with God on the Mountain. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Well, those 70 went up too. And they saw the God of Israel, something marvelous that to their grandchildren they could tell. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity, there below the feet of his awesome throne. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and drank, a marvelous feast, one ever so grand. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments for you to share, which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua. Together they did trod, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. Then he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. Let it, if any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. This you shall do. Then Moses into the mountain, up he went, and a cloud covered the, the mountain for this event. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud such were his ways the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire as the record does tell on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel so Moses went into the midst of the cloud and into the mountain up he went and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights the time that he there spent so Moses went there to meet with the Lord and to bring back instructions for Israel all the instructions according to his word, those words which the Bible does now tell. And all of this was a part of the story to lead us to the coming of Jesus. Each step reveals a bit more of his glory. 
Each step is revealed in the word to us. Lord God, we thank you for this marvelous book. We thank you for all the wonder it does relate to us. Give us the burning desire each day to take a look and to bring us ever closer to our Lord Jesus. Yes, through him to you we shall eternally praise. Yes, O God, so shall it be for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful story and the things that it shows us. And thank you for that chiasm, which just confirms what I had supposed eight weeks ago when I typed the sermon, is that there are certain things that you are trying to show us, and they're all to lead us to an understanding of the New Testament the New Testament and Jesus and his fulfillment of all of these types and pictures. Thank you for that. Lord God, we do pray for those that are out there that need prayer. I have a um, brother in ICU who uh, needs to know the Lord and needs to get healed physically as well named Howard and also uh, Julie's aunt Sheila who has Alzheimer's and she's falling a little bit and her mother is suffering with glaucoma. We would pray for them. We'd also pray for Nicole that she would uh, be strengthened and uh, get back to health and be able to come and fellowship with us once again. And uh, we just pray that uh, if she has a need, she'll be willing to reach out and to uh, let us know that. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for having gotten us here safely. We pray for uh, your hand of grace to be upon us and um, get us home safely as well and uh, enjoy the week ahead without any real incidents or troubles. But if they come, we'll be sure to praise you through that storm as well because you're worthy of it. No matter whether we have good or bad, you are above all those things, and you have promised us something better. So we anticipate that. We look forward to it. And even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.